folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 4. As I begin recording this episode, it is Saturday, June 13th, and I've recently returned from attending a healing walk for Chantelle Moore, a 26-year-old First Nations woman and mother gunned down by the RCMP in Edmonston, New Brunswick, the province in which I live, on June 4th. And Chantal is the second member of her family to be killed by the police. The ceremony had to be expanded to include commemoration as well of Rodney Levy, who was also shot by RCMP in the province earlier today. There have been, so far this month, some half a dozen First Nations people killed by police in Canada. This number is not unusual. It indicates many deep historical problems. So accordingly, today, I'll be giving a historical sketch of Canada's genocide against First Nations people. This history, of course, extends back before Confederation. It extends back pretty much to first contact. I'll be starting the story in 1763 and doing my best to bring it up to the present in a reasonable amount of time for a podcast. Now, I need to make clear as I launch into this that although this is something that I have studied and the history is something that I teach, this is not my community and I speak with no authority. I speak only as a person seeking to understand and seeking to help other people understand. As with my episodes on Black Lives Matter, I speak as a person attempting honestly to come to grips with his own cultural heritage which in many ways is a heritage of dispossession and oppression. I speak to try to cut through much of the sugarcoating that tends to be placed on cultural myths by the dominant cultures, by the cultures that control most of the public discourse. And honestly, I speak as an attempt to make some kind of amends, knowing that no amends can ever be sufficient. So whatever I discuss in this episode, bear in mind that it is incomplete And there are many people out there and many sources composed by people whose communities have been, both presently and historically, decimated by colonial policies. Seek them out. Learn from the people whose lives have most been touched by the history I'm about to get into with you. And with that as an introduction, let's begin. So, let's start with the Seven Years' War fought between the empires of Britain and France from 1756 to 1763. At stake in the war, basically, was control over much of North America. And to that end, both sides made alliances with various First Nations. The First Nations, of course, making the alliances to their own interests. And uh, to be honest with you, looking back on my own schooling on this matter in the public school system in the 1970s, I was basically taught that the British were the good guys and the French were the bad guys. And the indigenous peoples who sided with the British were the good Indians and the indigenous peoples who sided with the French were the bad Indians. And I really do hope that we've outgrown that narrative. In any case, when the British won in 1763, they made an agreement with the First Nations with whom they'd been allied. The agreement, by royal proclamation, was that land could only be acquired from First Nations by treaty, and only the Crown had the authority to make a treaty with First Nations. Now, let's pause for a moment and unpack what that actually means. Put simply, it means that no private interest and no merely local government has the authority to negotiate a treaty with a sovereign First Nations government. Or to put it even more basically, the sovereignty of First Nations is recognized in 1763 by royal proclamation, and negotiations over land can only be conducted nation to nation. The crown is the nation on the one side, and the various First Nations are the nations on the other side. And no colonial authority lower than the crown is a nation and therefore no colonial authority lower than the crown has the authority to negotiate a treaty with First Nations. It's that simple. The understanding is nations will speak to nations. And just to be clear that I'm not trying to paint an 
unduly rosy picture of the Imperial British government, and nobody should ever paint a rosy picture of the Imperial British government. As I record this in Fredericton, New Brunswick, I am sitting on unceded territory, that is, territory that was taken without treaty. Most of North America, most people in North America, are on unceded territory. So whatever was agreed to in 1763, it clearly went completely off the rails. Either that, or it was a lie to begin with. And quite frankly, I'm going to go with the second one. Not just because I'm a cynic, but because there was a belief at the time, or an attitude at the time, continued in some circles up to the present, that First Nations people were not due the same degree of respect that people of European extraction were due, either for racial or cultural reasons, you hear both. For example, Field Marshal Jeffrey Amherst, first Baron Amherst, commander-in-chief of the victorious British forces, architect of their strategy, first governor-general of the territory that would eventually become Canada, and the person after whom both Amherst, Nova Scotia and Amherstburg, Ontario are named, was quite upfront with his opinion that First Nations ought to simply be exterminated. Amherst, for example, was an advocate of the policy of distributing smallpox-infected blankets to First Nations people, knowing damn well that they had no immunity and that this was what we would now call biological warfare. Or to put it in his words, you will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. Now, to be clear, inoculate in his time meant something very different from inoculate in our time. Inoculate for him simply meant infect. So, we have a royal proclamation on the one hand, and the attitude of the future governor general on the other. Three guesses as to which one carried the most weight. In any case, because this is a short podcast and because I hope you will all go and investigate this on your own, I am going to skip forward now by several decades. So let's stop briefly in 1842 to 1844, and we'll talk a little bit about the Bagot Commission. Now, the Bagot Commission resulted in a number of laws which I'll discuss in more detail when we get to the various acts that grew out of it. Basically, it was a predecessor to the Gradual Civilization Act and the Indian Act. For now, though, there are two things we need to have in mind. One is that it drew a distinction between an Aboriginal person and a citizen of British North America, because, of course, this is before Confederation. That is, an Aboriginal person, by definition, is not a citizen. The other principal recommendation to come out of the Bagot Commission was the establishment of a system of residential schools that would remove First Nations children from their families and communities with the intention of incorporating them or assimilating them into white culture. This is the beginning of what would become the infamous residential schools that plagued Canadian history, and that are a shame on Canada as a nation for several generations. And this brings us around to the 1857 Gradual Civilization Act, more formally known as the Act to Encourage the Gradual Civilization of the Indian Tribes in the Province, enacted by the Province of Canada, formerly Upper and Lower Canada, which for those of you who aren't from around here, are basically the southern portions of Ontario and Quebec. The purpose of the Gradual Civilization Act was to assimilate First Nations people to Western ideologies. It had a particular focus on encouraging an aspiration to own private property. This, of course, was antithetical to the ways in which North American First Nations viewed the land, as the notion of private property was for our purposes, a particularly European development. So, in offering financial assistance to a, quote, educated Indian who was, quote, of good moral character, by which was meant, of course, 
a First Nations person who conformed to the dominant religious ideology of the time, a good Christian, the purpose of the act was to undermine both the land tenure system of First Nations and the spiritual, moral, and ethical systems of First Nations. Moreover, in offering financial assistance and encouraging the ownership of private property among First Nations, which property was to be carved out of reserve land, the 1857 Gradual Civilization Act was in clear violation of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. That is, it was a knowing violation of First Nations land rights. So we're not even at Confederation yet, and we've already seen infected blankets, conscious betrayals, and a level of duplicity that holds out the notion of equality on the one hand as a cosmetic front, while having no intention to honor that on the other. But unfortunately, it gets worse. Because as much as white Canadians like to celebrate and wave flags on July 1st, Confederation did not do First Nations any favors. In fact, for them, it was a catastrophe. So now I'd like to bring up a few laws of the Dominion of Canada, which of course was established in 1867 and discuss how that has affected First Nations for the last 150-plus years. The next piece of legislation we need to talk about is the 1869 Gradual Enfranchisement Act, whose long name is An Act for the Gradual Enfranchisement of Indians, the Better Management of Indian Affairs, and to extend the provisions of the 31st Victoria, Chapter 42. It's the Gradual Enfranchisement Act that provides the first legal definition of an Indian. Now, when I use the term Indian, I'm using it in the strictly legal sense. It's still the term that's on the books under Canadian law. And the definition is a person of at least one quarter First Nations descent. Why this matters may not at first be apparent. If you're using a legal term, of course, you need to have a clear definition. Nobody disputes that. But what the 1869 Act does is it usurps the authority of First Nations people to decide for themselves who belongs to their nations and presumes that it's the place of the settler government, the colonizing government, to define their identity for them. So it effectively decenters First Nations from questions of their own identity in the legal sense. It imposes a definition on them without consultation. The Gradual Enfranchisement Act also takes serious steps in undermining inherited First Nations systems of government. It's here that we see the introduction of elected band councils. Now, the band council system is still in use to this day. It's a legacy not of First Nations conventions or First Nations traditions or First Nations legal practices, but an imposition by the colonial government, by the settler government. It strips the inherited government structures of the various First Nations of legal standing within the Dominion and imposes an essentially British style of government on them. This is important for a number of reasons. Again, it's an imposition. It's not done with consultation. So not only is the government of Canada telling First Nations who is or is not an Indian, it's also telling them how they're to run their internal affairs, telling them that they must jettison practices that have histories going back thousands and thousands of years. I'd like you to hold on to this one because the tension between band councils and hereditary authority is one that still has legal ramifications today. And it's something that I will get to probably in another episode coming up fairly soon. Now, the 1869 Act also gave First Nations access to parcels of land carved out of their reserve to be held as private property with ownership transferable to descendants, very much building on the foundation laid by the 1857 Act. This, as I've said, is counter to the Royal Proclamation, 
in that it's carving out chunks of private property to be held not just by the individual, but by the individual's descendants, effectively male descendants, rather than according to the standards and norms of the First Nation in question, in which, in every case that I'm aware of, the holding of land as the private property of an individual was simply not done. The other major development to come out of the Gradual Enfranchisement Act was to introduce a degree of Western-style gender discrimination that had and has no place in First Nations culture. That is, the standard by which Indian status could be gained or lost was modeled on European Christian notions of the dominance of men and the subservience of women. What I'm talking about now are a couple of practices known as marrying in and marrying out. It works like this. According to the 1869 Act, if a non-First Nations woman marries a First Nations man, she acquires his Indian status. So she marries into the First Nation. But if a non-First Nations man marries a First Nations woman, the non-First Nations man does not acquire status and the First Nations woman loses status. This is called marrying out. So what this does is it makes the man the focal point of belonging, the focal point of identity. This is at odds with common practice among First Nations in North America, or at least in Canada, which tended to be matrilinear. That is, identity is established not through the man, but through the woman. Not through the husband, but through the wife. Not through the father, but through the mother. So what the 1869 Gradual Enfranchisement Act does is it completely usurps authority for deciding who belongs to the nation, how internal affairs are conducted, and how men and women will relate to each other in terms of both political and familial power. And once again, this is all done without consultation. Every single clause in this act undermines the authority of First Nations over themselves. There was no negotiation here. So, whereas the Royal Proclamation of 1763 recognizes that these are nations with whom colonial governments must negotiate, with whom the Crown must negotiate, once we reach Confederation, negotiation seems to have been chucked out the window. And we haven't even gotten yet to the Indian Act of 1876, which is where we'll go next. So, what do we say about the 1876 Indian Act? This is the most important piece of legislation regarding First Nations in Canada. It's been amended a few times, but the basic framework still followed is the framework laid down in 1876. In addition to affirming everything that I've already discussed with you, strengthening band councils, for example, strengthening the reserve system, the Indian Act makes all First Nations people wards of the state. Effectively, this gives them the status of children. It strips First Nations people of recognition of individual autonomy and collective autonomy. It assumes that they are not capable of making informed and responsible decisions on their own. Moreover, the 1876 Act places all First Nations bands under the authority of white Indian agents. What this effectively does is give Indian agents authority comparable to the authority a parent has over a child. Now, I want you to let that rattle around in your heads for a little while. The Indian Act effectively legally infantilizes an entire population, and it lays a framework for systemic abuse that we are still living with to this day. To give you one very simple example, if the Indian agent has effectively the legal rights of parents over all First Nations people, what that means is that First Nations parents don't have the rights of parents over their own children. That is, 
what the act effectively does is it legally dissolves all authority that First Nations have over themselves, their families, and their communities. It's not until 1960 that First Nations people in Canada have the right to vote in federal elections. That is, while women, or rather non-Indigenous women, have had the right to vote in Canada since 1916, First Nations people were in effect not full persons under law until within living memory. Now, I'd like to skip ahead a few more years to 1884. Now, as I skip ahead, I realize I'm passing over some pretty important historical stuff. 1876, of course, south of the border was the year of the Little Bighorn, which saw a confederation of, of Western First Nations quite rightly wipe out the 7th U.S. Cavalry under command of General George Custer. There are a number of other events related to that that straddle the U.S.-Canadian border that involve the systematic starvation of First Nations by both Canadian and American governments that I will return to in a future episode. So take as background simply that regardless of what else I'm talking about today, First Nations on both sides of the 49th parallel are being systematically starved out, are starved into submission by the Canadian and American governments respectively. For the time being though, the reason I'm pausing on 1884 is the year that the so-called industrial schools, later called residential schools, actually begin operations. Now you'll remember that these were recommended by the Bagot Commission, but this being candidate can sometimes take about 40 years to put things into effect. The purpose of these schools was multifold. Simply put, their mission was to assimilate Indigenous peoples into white society. But as you can tell from the name, the title, Industrial Schools, even the assimilation itself was to be a subservient sort of assimilation. These were not schools where students were taught to pursue academic excellence. These were schools where, if they were taught anything, they were taught to be useful to white people, to be menial servants of one kind or another, to serve the industrial system, to serve white capitalism, quite frankly. But in the process of this assimilation, not only were First Nations children to be inculcated, indoctrinated into their lower status, but they were also to be converted to Christianity. That is, their own cultures, their own languages were to be eliminated. And the purpose of the schools in eliminating First Nations culture is, is quite explicit. When children were brought to these schools, and by the way, their families had no choice because, of course, their parents had no authority over them. If the Indian agent said the kid is going to a residential school, then the kid is going to a residential school because it's the Indian agent, not the parent, who has authority over the child, ultimately. They were not allowed to speak their languages. They were not allowed to wear their clothes, clothes attached to their culture. They were not allowed to take part in the practices of their own culture. They were not allowed to use their own names. And if they did any of these things, they could be severely punished, beaten, put in solitary confinement, starved, and worse. Now, as for the structure of the schools, while they were funded by the federal government, they were administered by the churches. And in descending order of the number of schools they controlled, the relevant denominations were Catholic, with more than 50% of them, then Anglican, Presbyterian, and Methodist, and later United. In the same year, potlatches, which were among the most important ceremonial and political gatherings of First Nations, were legally banned, as was the wearing of ceremonial regalia. And this ban lasted until 1951. So when we start talking about the residential school system, we're talking about an enforced relocation of a population, specifically of children, to a government institute that the children were not allowed to leave on fear of severe punishment and in which they were to be indoctrinated 
into the invading ideology in which their own ideologies and individual and cultural identities were to be systematically extinguished, in which abuse, psychological, physical, sexual, was common, and in which disease as well ran rampant. Now, these schools operated for over a century. The last one in Canada closed, I believe, in 1994, 1996. So generation after generation of First Nations children were taken from their parents for 10 of the 12 months a year and taught that their own culture was inferior. They were shown movies once movies became a thing, and among the very common types of movies they were shown was westerns, which typically showed so-called Indians wearing red face, and the Indians, of course, in these westerns were always the bad guys with the inferior culture. This is what these kids were taught generation after generation after generation. They were not allowed to write home. Communication was intercepted by the priests and the nuns. Nuns were known to have written cheery-sounding letters supposedly on behalf of the students to the parents, but these were lies. And this doesn't even get into the disease rates or the suicide rates. And the disease rates were high, devastatingly high. So we're going to pause again and elaborate on a theme that I started off with with old Jeffrey Amherst and his penchant for biological warfare. So as you already know, the use of smallpox as a biological weapon was, by the late 19th, early 20th centuries, very well established. And, and it arguably accounted for more First Nations deaths than any other factor. By the time we reach about 1920, by the way, the First Nations population in Canada is around 120,000, down to less than 10% of what it had been at first contact. This is a very effective genocide, and some nations, such as the Beothuk of Newfoundland, simply ceased to exist completely. They were literally hunted to extinction. In fact, and I owe this next bit to Shannon Blackmore, a former student of mine, in fact, the last Beothuk who died in 1829 in St. John's, Newfoundland, her name was Shona Dithetitis, had been, well, her remains had been on display in Europe until just a few weeks ago when, when she was finally repatriated. A few weeks ago. That's almost 200 years of her body simply being treated as a thing, as a curiosity for European onlookers or an object of anthropological study. But it took years to be able to bring her body back to where it belonged. This is simply one example among so many of the dehumanization of First Nations people, both in their own eyes and in the eyes of the colonizers, that has not gone away. And I need to emphasize this has not gone away. More on that later. But to get back to biological warfare, smallpox was a big killer. But another huge killer, especially among children, was tuberculosis. And tuberculosis ran rampant in the residential schools. Now, if you get tuberculosis, there are certain protocols that are put into effect. One, you're isolated. Two, you're taken someplace dry, where your lungs can heal, because of course it's a respiratory infection. But most importantly, you're isolated. You're kept out of contact with other people, because of course the disease is very contagious. Well, when kids in the residential schools came down with tuberculosis, as they often did, they were not isolated. Not only were they not isolated, healthy children were often forced to share the beds of children with TB, virtually guaranteeing a high infection rate. So the death toll was enormous. And some of you may be familiar with the numbers coming out of the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report of about 5,000. That figure is low. That's only the official figures. A lot of deaths weren't, weren't reported. There have been found in the last few decades numerous unmarked mass graves, and nobody knows who those kids are. 
but we'll return to the disposal of dead children shortly. For now, let's stick with tuberculosis. So by the early 20th century, TB rates are out of control. Children are dying, sometimes with casualty rates as high as 75%. Now, as I'm making this recording in the middle of a pandemic that has locked down the entire world economy for a fantastically lower percentage of casualties. Just let that number soak in. Death rates of children in residential schools from disease could be as high as 75%. Well, it's hard to keep those kind of numbers secret forever. In 1907, Dr. Peter Bryce toured the residential schools. Dr. Bryce was the medical inspector for the Department of Indian Affairs, and he was appalled by what he saw. And he wrote a very damning report, which he passed on to the deputy superintendent, one Duncan Campbell Scott. And if there were ever a contest for worst Canadian, Duncan Campbell Scott would have to be in the running, and I'm really not sure who he would be running against. It doesn't matter. He would probably win. When Dr. Bryce reported his findings to Scott, expecting the person who effectively had executive authority over the entire First Nations population of Canada to try to help them not die, Duncan Campbell Scott referred to the situation as, and I quote, the final solution of our Indian problem. This in 1910. The final solution to our Indian problem. Now, some of you have probably heard that phrase, the final solution, before, or even the final solution to our Jewish problem, and you probably attributed it to one Heinrich Himmler. But no, no, Duncan Campbell Scott beat him to the punch. Duncan Campbell Scott, for the purposes of genocide, is the father of the phrase, the final solution, that, if you are a white Canadian, is part of your fucking heritage. So what else do we say about old Duncan? Well, given that the fatality numbers were actually very high, he had the brilliant idea. And I seem to recall some other public figure making a similar argument not that long ago, that if you didn't do the tests, your numbers wouldn't be as bad. So he simply abolished the position of medical inspector, which of course makes about as much sense as abolishing your pandemic response team Assuming, of course, that your agenda is the well-being of the people with whose care you've been entrusted. But one should never assume that agenda, should one. No inspections, no problem. This was in 1919. But the story keeps going. In 1920, residential school attendance was made compulsory for children of seven and older, even after the lethal conditions were known, and I would say probably because they were known, because this exactly lines up with Scott's abolition of the office of the medical inspector. And there are stories, again, still in living memory, going up to the 60s and the 70s, of federal authorities, often RCMP, showing up to a village and taking all of the children, simply taking them all. And the parents had no rights no rights, legally speaking, to protect their children. And let's pause on that question of, of, of parents, because I've been talking about children. And of course, these children, many of them would become parents, and cycles of, of trauma would be set up. Children raised in institutions that taught them to despise their own culture, to see their oppressors as innately superior not given any kind of love, not given any kind of affection, often abused, as I said, in multiple ways, learning nothing about how to be parents themselves. And these children, as I said, many of them would become parents. Well, what kind of parent are you likely to become if you're a product of years and years and years of multiple categories of abuse? And if your own identity has been presented to you as something to be ashamed of? Add to that, and I say this as a parent, there's no stronger impulse than to protect your children. You will do anything to come between your children and harm, between your children and someone who seeks to hurt them. Imagine being a parent who systematically denied the rights 
to act on those instincts, especially if you're a parent who's already been put through that abusive system. There are, again, generations and generations of First Nations parents who have said in, in interviews how powerless they felt on the one hand, and how, how, on the other hand, how it felt like they had failed. Even though they knew that they were powerless, that sense of failure is still deeply ingrained. Because if something happens to your child, you do feel guilty. Even if a rational person, even if your own rational self will tell you it wasn't your fault, if something happens to your child, if your child gets hurt and you are there, there will always be something in you that tells you that it's your fault. So this system destroyed children. It destroyed parents. It destroyed children who had become parents. And in its premeditated disruption of language and culture, it robbed the survivors of some of the oldest and deepest parts of themselves. And again, this was by design. These children were to be made to be Christian. They were to be made to be subservient. They were to be made to accept white authority. Or to put it in Duncan Campbell Scott's words, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question and there is no Indian department. That is, the objective of these schools, the objective of the Indian Affairs Department was, until fairly recently, explicitly genocidal. But let's move forward. Just following up on the, uh, the question of regalia, in 1922, Chief Dan Cranmer and his guests were arrested for attending a potlatch in Alert Bay, B.C. 45 people were convicted and 17 sent to prison. 17 people sent to prison for no crime other than participating in their own culture. This is Canada. And uh, a few years later, in 1927, in response to a sovereignty challenge on the part of the Six Nations Haudenosaunee Nation near Brantford, Ontario, which I plan on addressing in detail in a future episode quite soon, the Indian Act was amended. Now, this may sound encouraging until you hear the amendment. The Act was amended to make it illegal for First Nations to raise money or to retain a lawyer for the purpose of advancing land claims. That is, the 1927 amendment effectively made it illegal for First Nations to use the legal system to challenge the federal government in court. But of course, the federal government isn't the only government that is to blame here. In 1928, the province of Alberta passed the Sexual Sterilization Act. And in 1933, the province of British Columbia followed suit. These acts gave the province the authority to do exactly what the name of the act sounds like to sexually sterilize First Nations people, adults or children. And, and to make things worse, the BC Act also makes residential school principals, that is, church employees, the legal guardians of all of the students in their schools, once again, removing any semblance of authority that parents would reasonably be expected to have over their children and for the protection of their children. So the principals of these church-run schools condemned countless children to sexual sterilization, acting on what effectively was the parental authority granted to them by the state. If these laws and these actions sound familiar to you from what you may have learned about the history of Germany prior to the Second World War, they should. At this same time, on the other side of the Atlantic, under the authority of the Nazis, German doctors were sterilizing Romani people, were sterilizing people deemed to be physically or mentally unfit in the name of a white supremacist eugenics. That is, not only does Canada have to accept that the phrase, the final solution in its most racist and genocidal context is part of our heritage, 
we also need to accept that we engaged in exactly the same kind of behavior that the Germans did under Hitler. We engaged actively in genocide. We engaged in sterilization surgery against a targeted minority. And, and, we, and we engaged in a whole lot worse. And to explain what I mean by that, I need to skip ahead to the end of the war, to 1946, and talk to you a little bit about Project Paperclip, also sometimes called Operation Paperclip. Now, Project Paperclip was conducted in cooperation with the American military and intelligence agencies, and its objective was to use Nazi research and scientific personnel, about 1,600 of them in all, to establish superiority over the Soviets in areas of rocketry and biological and chemical warfare. Of course, the, uh, the, the role that German scientists played, for example, in the American space program is well known. Werner von Braun, probably the most essential person in the space program in the mid-20th century, cut his teeth on the V-1 and V-2 rockets. And the Russians, of course, had their own German scientists that they were using in the exact same way. What's not as well known is the medical experiments. And for subjects of medical experiments, these Nazi doctors very often used First Nations children. In fact, there were agreements between the federal government and the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches to supply these doctors with test subjects. And I've, I've read accounts, first-hand accounts, of people, then children, lying on operating tables, about to be put under, surrounded by doctors speaking German. And remember, the purpose of this research was effectively military. It was to to establish superiority over the Russians. Children were deliberately infected with diseases. Surgeries were performed on them without their consent, or of course, without their parents' consent. That is, their humanity was completely stripped away. They were made into things, legally made into things. In experiments that, if you were to hear about them and not be told where they happened, you would simply assume that they happened in a German concentration camp. These experiments continued, and these forced sterilizations also continued, right up into the 1970s. By the 70s, of course, many of the schools were beginning to close down, and after they were closed, more information began to come to light. A number of the sites have been excavated, and mass graves have been found, sometimes multiple mass graves to a single school, and sometimes as well there are accounts of, of children's dead bodies being incinerated in furnaces. And there's been more than one occasion where, where, the, skeletons, where the skeletons of babies were built into the walls, and these nameless remains, many of them, indicate really only one possible, one possible conclusion. And this conclusion is supported by eyewitness testimony, by first-hand accounts, that the priests, ministers, what have you, who were running these places were frequently sexually assaulting their students. Sometimes their students became pregnant and were forced to have abortions. Sometimes the children were carried to term and disposed of. If you dig into the large, large literature of first-hand testimony, of, of survival memoirs, of witnesses simply giving their accounts from their experience, you can find these online, you can find them on YouTube, and there are many published memoirs. Two that I recommend are Phil Fontaine's Broken Circle and Bev Sellers' They Called Me Number One. But if you dig into everything that's out there, and if you talk to people from First Nations communities, you find, you find tales of sexual assault, you find tales of malnutrition, of beatings. In short, you find tales of every category of abuse that I've been talking to you about today, and you find that these are common. Now, in the last several decades, as the schools gradually closed down, and the last one closed down in 1996, information from survivors has continued to come to light. 
This, of course, is what led to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission being launched in 2008 and issuing its report in 2015, which labeled what happened to Canadian First Nations as a cultural genocide. I would delete the word cultural. I think that was simply put in there for political reasons, because it was a genocide. Before the TRC was launched, though, if we go back to 1998, there is another episode that I think is worth mentioning. The International Human Rights Association of American Minorities, an affiliate of the UN, acting on evidence of many Aboriginal witnesses to crimes against humanity, argued to the UN that the government of Canada and the Catholic, United and Anglican churches are guilty of complicity in genocide, and it recommended that a UN war crimes investigation be held. The investigation was not held because the Canadian government pressured the UN not to do it. Now, you don't pressure the UN to not investigate you for war crimes and crimes against humanity if you haven't committed crimes against humanity. But I do keep tossing this word genocide around, and I want to make clear that I'm not using it frivolously. So here is the definition of genocide in the 1948 UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, Article 2. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, as you were listening to this, I imagine you could probably fill in the blanks pretty well yourselves. Killing members of the group had gone on since first contact by both direct military action and biological warfare and deliberate starvation, among other methods. The residential schools themselves caused serious bodily and mental harm. Oh, and I didn't even get into the scalping laws. When I said that the Beothuk, for example, were hunted to extinction, many jurisdictions had prices, bounties, on the scalps of First Nations people. And you could take your First Nations scalp to a representative of your provincial government and pick up your bounty. Some of these laws remained on the books until just a few years ago. As far as deliberately inflicting on groups conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, the deliberate starvation policies pursued particularly in the West come to mind, as do the forced removals of whole populations from their hereditary lands and the confining of their communities once they had been forced to give up their traditional lifestyles to the least arable land that was available, preserving the better land for white farmers. The ongoing problem on reserves, where one of the richest countries in the world is choosing not to make sure that these reserves have fresh drinking water, and this is a choice. As far as measures intended to prevent births, well, that's what sterilization is, and we did it. And the forcible transferring of children of the group to another group, this covers what was done both in the residential schools, which I've been talking to you about, and in the 60s scoop, which I haven't talked to you about, but which involved children being taken from their homes and from their communities and placed with, uh, placed with white families. So, yeah, when I say Canada has done genocide, Canada has done genocide, and it's not done. As I said, the problem on the reserves with fresh water, and this has been going on for years, people are getting sick, people are dying. The problems with our police, shooting and killing a disproportionate number of First Nations people compared to any other ethnic group. The misrepresentation, the overrepresentation of First Nations people in our prison system. That is, Canada has effectively criminalized being First Nations on a par with the way the U.S. has effectively criminalized being black. And for the record, as I discussed in a previous episode, 
Canada also has a long history of racism against black people, systemic racism. So as I stumble toward the end of this first of probably many podcasts I'll be doing on First Nations or Indigenous issues, I hope those of you who were not familiar with this history are able to recognize it and are willing to accept it because it is very well attested. I hope those of you who are familiar with it find that I've represented it fairly. And I hope in a small way that this podcast and the others like it that will follow help to correct this situation that should never have happened and having happened should have been corrected a long, long time ago. As always, if you want to contact me, you can find me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com or check out the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page. I would love to hear from you, and I'm always open to suggestions. For now, though, if you've made it this far, as always, thank you for listening. And in these very turbulent times, be kind to each other.